Welcome to the podcast of the universe. Warning. Steve is on his bullshit again. Let's start the show. This is Podcast of the Universe. I am your host, Steve. My producer is Hats. Hats, thank you for coming in today. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at thisispotu. That's T-H-I-S-I-S-P-O-T-U. Today's episode is part one of two, Cult Sounds. Now, Cult Sounds is an album I bought in the fall, and the full title of the record is Cult Sounds, Doomsday Worshippers, Criminal Cults, Hippie Mindbenders, Faith Hustlers, and more. The music and sounds of fringe religious movements. Now, why did I buy this album? Before I bought this album, I found a copy of The Last Supper, which was the uh, Jonestown recordings. I had found those on vinyl, and I gave them to my brother for Christmas. So I had been looking for that album for a long time in good shape, and I found one, and uh, he was ecstatic. Now, my wife, my family, they were mortified. thought it was absolutely disgusting, but he was very happy. So I was a little jealous that I didn't have the album, so I bought this to pacify myself. Now, some people think it's pretty weird, but it's not that different than people who watch true crime documentaries like I do. When I watch a, you know, I started the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. I'm not glad that Ted Bundy killed those people, but I'm I'm interested in watching that. It's uh, gripping, the things that, that people can do and, and become, even if they're horrible things. Which is, not everyone is into, into true crime, but it's the best way to describe it. So anyway, that's why I bought the album. So I thought I would use it uh, for purposes of the podcast. So some of these groups are very well known. So I put in brief summaries or maybe things you didn't know about the group and glossed over a lot. There's so much more time you could spend on each individual group, but this is more of a a sampler. Um, It's like an appetizer platter. So that's the best way to describe today's episode. So after each introduction and overview of the cult or the group, I will then play a track that I found online, which also appears on the record. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. Uh, it's going to be a weird one. Some of the songs are awful. You might not want to sit through five minutes of it. Maybe you skip skip through those songs. I'll leave that up to you. Um, so part two should be out within the next two weeks. After that, I will begin working on uh, a hobo episode, which will be very fun, I hope. I hope I don't stumble across dark, horrible hobo things. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, we have a lot of misunderstandings and misinformation about hobos. So I will hopefully dispel some of that. So let's get on with the show. We'll start with the People's Temple Choir. And uh, actually, if you listen to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, you may recognize the People's Temple Choir song. So I will leave you with that, and let's start the show. So the first song we're going to hear today comes from the People's Temple Choir. Yes, that People's Temple. The People's Temple of Disciples of Christ, led by one Jim Jones. Now much has been covered about the cult, about Jonestown, and the eventual mass suicide. So let's do a quick overview. Before starting a church, Jim Jones was into communism. He wasn't happy with how communists or suspected communists were being treated by the U.S. government. 1952, he had a spot as a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indianapolis. He ended up leaving that church because it prevented him from allowing African Americans into the congregation. In 1954, Jones began a new church, and he called it the Community Unity Church. 
That was in a rented space. It was there he began his fake healings with chicken guts. Now, if you're unaware, um, you can find it on YouTube, uh, psychic surgery or spiritual surgery. Alleged healers will hide chicken guts or other, you know, gross stuff in their hands, and they pretend to pull it without incision from people's stomachs, and then they'll tell them that they're healed. So, fast forward to 1956, Jones buys a building in a racially diverse neighborhood and names the new church Wings of Deliverance. Within that same year, he renamed it as the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. Unlike other churches, the congregation was encouraged to wear casual clothing as to not make lower-income uh, members feel uncomfortable. In 1959, the People's Temple absorbed the Disciples of Christ Christian Church and again changed their name to the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. Uh, 1959, Jones began emulating the preaching style of a man named Father Divine, where he would challenge members openly in front of the congregation. Uh, he began mixing loud and quiet tones and silence and changed his preaching style. It was around this time he also began the us versus them theme. Uh, he began painting Jesus as a communist and began having his congregation spending holidays with their spiritual family and not their blood relatives. He also began asking for his flock to donate their possessions to meet the needs of other members. In 1960, the People's Temple opened a soup kitchen and they served approximately 2,800 meals a month, as well as providing rent assistance, job placement services, uh, food bank, free clothing, and coal for heating. Jones was then appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. The teachings of the temple changed to almost atheism and at the same time presenting Jones as a Christ-like figure. 1961 saw Jones sharing his visions of Chicago coming under nuclear attack and that Indianapolis would also be destroyed, so they would need a new location. So Jones would travel through Brazil from 1962 into early 1963, scouting possible locations, and it, he went there basically because it was listed as one of the safest places to be during a nuclear war. When he returned in 1963, he preached that the Holy Spirit was within his followers and that he was a manifestation of Christ the revolution, uh, that the U.S. was the Antichrist and capitalism was the system of the Antichrist. In 1965, he prophesied that there would be a nuclear holocaust on July 15, 1967, which would be followed by a new socialist, Eden, on Earth. Uh, July 1965, Jones, with 140 members, went to Red Redwood Valley, California, opened a church there. He also had a deputy district attorney join, which added credibility to the outfit and increased membership of the new temple. It was then he turned on Christianity, saying its purpose was for the white man to keep people of color and women down. He pointed out the atrocities and the contradictions in the Bible, but acknowledged there was great truth in there, and said that the God portrayed within was a buzzard God and no God at all. In 1970, the temple began holding services in the San Francisco and Los Angeles area. Uh, 1971, permanent temple begins in San Francisco. 1972, a permanent location in Los Angeles. 1972, the Redwood location was deemed the Mother Church, and the LA location was to recruit and be a way station for the group's bus trips across the state. These recruiting efforts brought membership from a few hundred to 3,000 by the mid-70s. These bus trips were not only for recruiting, but also fundraising, and quarterly they would travel outside of the state. Jones would hold services while on tour, and use temple members as plants in the audience who would fake healings. Another income generator for the church was Truth Enterprises which received donations through the mail from all over the world. It was also through this channel that they sold trinkets like rings, keychains, healing oil, lockets, 
and even pieces of robes from Jones, from Jones himself. This alone generated $300 to $400 daily. In 1973, the Brotherhood Records is born and produces albums by the youth choir and an orchestra uh, known as the People's Temple Choir. And we'll be hearing uh, their song in a moment, one of their songs. So in 1974, the People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guyana, and the property is called the People's Temple Agricultural Project and had as few as 50 residents by early 77. By the mid-70s, there were almost a dozen satellite locations, and the temple has a reputation for their social outreach. They were helping the poor, the homeless, drug addicts. They were running residential care homes for seniors and children, and they even had a ranch for disabled people. In 1976, Jones moves to San Francisco and admits to everyone openly that he is an atheist and becomes interested in politics. Uh, he had meetings with the First Lady Rosalind Carter multiple times. He had the support of Governor Jerry Brown, uh, the mayor of San Francisco, and Harvey Milk. 1977 saw media scrutiny and former members began speaking out against the People's Temple, and with that, Jones took his leave and headed for Guyana. After he arrived, he encouraged others to join him in Jonestown, and by late 1978, the population grew to over 900 people looking for paradise. November 17th, 1978, U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan went to visit Jonestown and to see for himself what was happening after reports of abuse. While there, Temple members asked to leave with him and go back to the U.S. The next day, a few members accompanied Ryan to the local airstrip, and they were stopped before they left by security guards, security guards of the temple, who shot and killed Leo Ryan, three journalists, one of the defectors. That evening, Jones ordered his congregation to drink a concoction of cyanide and grape flavorade, not Kool-Aid, flavorade. It wasn't the first time he had ordered his congregation to commit suicide. He had done it many times previous, uh, just not included any poison. As much as it was a drill, it was also to see that, that they would follow through with it. It was to get them comfortable with the idea that they may need to commit suicide on his orders. He said that there was nowhere else for them to go, and he didn't want them uh, to be killed or taken by the authorities, so they would need to commit suicide. 918 people died, including 276 children. That includes four that died in the U.S. at Temple headquarters. And up until 9-11, it was the greatest loss of American civilian lives. Here is the People's Temple Choir performing a song called Welcome.
This next song is going to be from Manton family member Bobby Beausoleil, a.k.a. Cupid. He was sentenced to death for the July 27, 1969 murder of Gary Hinman. Hinman was a friend to the Manson family who let various family members stay with him in his Topanga Canyon home. Hinman had a degree in chemistry, he was working towards a PhD in sociology, and also a very talented musician who taught trombone, piano, bagpipes, and drums. July 25, 1969, Bobby Beausoleil, along with other Manson family members, uh, Susan Atkins, Mary Brunner, they went to see Hinman. There's two theories why they went and held him hostage. The first was that Charles Manson wanted them to convince Hinman to join the family and to turn over his assets to the group. The second theory was that when this was given by Beausoleil himself, Bobby says that Hinman sold him bad mescaline and they wanted a refund. Whatever the reason, the ordeal lasted three days and Manson himself had showed up with Bruce Davis. And when Charles Manson arrived, uh, he struck Hinman right away with a sword, cutting his ear and his face, and then left. Atkins and Brunner stitched his ear back together with some dental floss, and on the 27th, Beausoleil eventually killed Hinman by stabbing him in the chest twice, and then took turns with Atkins and Brunner holding a pillow over his face. Beausoleil then wrote political piggy on the wall in Hinman's blood, as well as a paw print to lead authorities to believe the crime was committed by the Black Panthers, and this would further push the idea of Manson's helter-skelter. This was the first Manson family murder. On April 18th, 1970, a Superior Court jury in Los Angeles found the 22-year-old guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced Bobby to death. His sentence was commuted, though, to life imprisonment when the California Supreme Court ruled that the then-prevailing death penalty statutes unconstitutional in 1972. Beausoleil began serving his sentence in California on June 23, 1970. Uh, he was incarcerated in Oregon between 1994 and August 2015 and currently housed at California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. Beausoleil's initial parole suitability hearing was held on August 15, 1978, and up until 2016, he's had 18 subsequent suitability hearings, with each ending in the parole board finding him unsuitable for parole. Now, a California parole board on January 3rd of this year, 2019, recommended that Robert Beausoleil be freed after serving nearly 50 years in prison. In the late 1970s, with the permission of the prison, Beausoleil composed and recorded a soundtrack for a film by Kenneth Anger titled Lucifer Rising. Beausoleil has released nine albums, four compilations, and five singles. The song we're going to be hearing now is Lucifer Rising Part 1.
Jeremy Spencer, a British guitarist, best known for being an original member of Fleetwood Mac. He was there with the group when they began in 1967. He abruptly left in 1971 to join the Children of God, which is now known as the Family International. He released an album titled Jeremy Spencer and the Children in 1972, and in a moment we'll hear a track from the, called The Prophet uh, from that album. Before we get to that song, let's learn a little bit about the Children of God. The Children of God was founded in Huntington Beach, California by David Berg in 1968 under the name Teens for Christ. Berg owned a coffee shop, and a lot of his clients were hippies, so he disguised himself as a hippie and began spreading the gospel. Berg and his hippies left California in 1969, and they went on to preach their beliefs throughout the southwestern United States. It was then that they became the children of God, no longer focusing solely on teenagers. Now, because this is a cult, there's some creepy sex stuff. So Berg knew that his free love would be well-received by the hippies, so he said that God loved sex because sex is beautiful, and conversely, Satan hates sex because it's beautiful. He said if you were having a lot of sex with a lot of people, you were pleasing God. Berg then pulled one of the oldest, most unoriginal cult moves that there are. He said God wanted him to be a polygamist, and he took a second wife. He also said that masturbation was a gift from God, and you should do it all the time. It was also suggested that members should think of Jesus while they masturbated. More than that, they were told to spice things up and say things like, You excite me, Jesus, and I want to feel your love. I want to excite you too. Berg began calling himself Moses David and wrote thousands of letters and explicit comics for the group. And when I say explicit comics, I mean he made porno comics for the group and distributed them. And he included his teachings in there. Things like, the angel Gabriel had sex with Mary when he told her she was going to give birth to Jesus. And that Jesus had sex with his own mother. Uh, Berg was also a proponent of incest within the group. He said that since sex was a gift from God, there was nothing wrong with practicing with your family members. And not one to be a hypocrite, Berg was said to have had a sexual relationship with at least one of his daughters. And once said the biggest regret in his life was not having sex with his own mother. All of this sounds bad enough, but this piece of shit said that children should also be permitted to explore their sexuality and that children over the age of 12 were encouraged to reproduce. Their pamphlets even celebrated child marriage. Berg wrote of this to justify child marriages and basically kids having kids. He said, God created boys and girls able to have children by about 12 years of age. When Berg wasn't promoting incest or molestation, he was prophesizing about disasters and other bullshit. Things like a comet hitting the earth in 1974, an earthquake destroying California, or Jesus returning in 1993. Now, Jesus ended up changing his mind in 1993 when Berg said that Jesus changed his mind because the people of earth were not ready. One of the things that Berg had his followers do was to recruit new members. And one of the ways to recruit new members was something he called flirty fishing. He would send women out to go meet potential members and basically snare them with sex and convince them to join the group. He even had his daughter uh, take part in this practice as well. By 1977, the cult had had over 130 communes all over the world filled with members torn between is heaven inside of the moon or is heaven in a giant glass ball spaceship that it's just hurling through space. 
They also believed in some wild characters, stuff like a spirit who attacked missionaries called Hong Kong Gulagong or Oplexicon, a demon who opposed truth, or Arazamon, a demon that caused nerve pain. They did have positive imaginary friends, uh, ones like the love fairies that helped people have better sex, and one called Watchdog. Watchdog was the protector of children, and I'm pretty sure he didn't exist. The Children of God changed their name to the Family International in the 1990s. After Berg's death in 1994, the group tried to distance themselves from his ideals. They no longer officially condone child sex. They claim that while they do practice free love, no children in the group are sexually or physically abused. There was also a murder-suicide. Ricky Rodriguez was Berg's adopted son, and he was supposed to be the next leader of the cult. Berg raised him from infancy within the cult, but Rodriguez was actually the child of one of Berg's wives, Karen Zerby, and a man with whom Karen flirty fished. Berg wanted to pass on leadership of the Children of God to Rodriguez after his death, but instead Rodriguez got out of the Children of God. Rodriguez married another Children of God member, and they left the cult altogether. But after a few years, they divorced. As a child, Rodriguez had been forced to do sexual experimentation with adults, including with his nanny. Distressed after his marriage broke up, Rodriguez made a video of himself sitting behind a table of weapons, supplies, uh, things like knives, tasers, duct tape, gags, etc. And actually, you can see this video still on YouTube. In the video, he said he wanted to kill his mother as revenge for what happened to him as a child. But instead of killing his mother, Rodriguez invited his childhood nanny to his apartment, where he stabbed her to death, and soon after shot himself in the head. So I think we can wrap this section up. Uh, so we'll hear from Jeremy Spencer in his song, The Prophet. It's not a good song. If you want to skip through it, it's about 3 minutes and 20 seconds. None of the songs so far will make it to my playlist but this one is certainly my least favorite song so far. They're still around. They have an online presence. They have a podcast. Um, they tried to promote their charitable work. But really, an organization with such a vile, vile, disgusting history, if they're not continuing those same practices, why they would cling to that or maintain it makes no sense. It's, uh, it's just flat-out disgusting. Uh, and they're not the only group either that I think should close up shop based on the uh, evil or disgusting things they've done. So let's get on with the song. Like I said, it's like 3 minutes, 20 seconds if you want to skip it. Jeremy Spencer and the Children, and the song is called The Prophet.
Our next song comes from Shoko Asahara, and he was from the Japanese cult Um Shinrikyo. Um Shinrikyo was also known as simply Om or Aleph. It was a Japanese cult that combined tenets from Buddhism, Hinduism, and was obsessed with the apocalypse. So it was founded by Shoko Asahara in his Tokyo apartment in 1984, uh, where it was a yoga and meditation class. Uh, skip ahead 1989, it became recognized as a religious group. The group split into two factions in 2007 due to the internal friction over attempts to moderate the cult's religious beliefs and to improve its public image. So I thought for this one I would give a more of a timeline format. So 1984, Shoko Asahara forms Am Shinsen no Kai. He later names it Am Shinrikyo. November 4th, 1989, Tsutsumi Sakamoto and his wife, along with their one-year-old son, were killed by Am members at their home in Yokohama. He was killed because he was a lawyer assisting with complaints against the group. In February of 1990, Asahara and 24 other Am members run unsuccessfully in the House of Representatives election. June 27, 1994, Am members release sarin nerve gas in a residential area city of Matsumoto, Nagano Prefecture. Eight people are killed and more than 100 others are injured. March 20, 1995, Am members attack Tokyo subway system with sarin gas. 13 people are killed. Some reports say 12, uh, and over 6,200 injured. May 16, 1995, Asahara was arrested. April 24, 1996, his trial begins, and he pleads not guilty to all charges except for the nerve gas attack on a man. Uh, December 2, 1997, prosecutors reduced the number of injuries in the subway attack indictment to hasten court deliberations. December 27, 1999, a law aimed at monitoring Om goes into effect. January 18, 2000, Om admits Asahara's involvement in the crimes for the first time. The cult renames itself Aleph, that's A-L-E-P-H. October 4, 2000, prosecutors drop indictments in four of 17 cases. March 13, 2003, Asahara refuses to speak in his first questioning in court. March 27, 2003, he remains silent at his second questioning. And April 10, 2003, he again declines to speak at the third questioning. Examination of evidence is concluded. April 24, 2003, prosecutors demand the death sentence for Asahara. October 31, 2003, the trial concludes... Asahara remained silent. February 27, 2004, the Tokyo District Court sentences Asahara to death. And September 15, 2006, his death sentence is finalized. And June 15, 2012, the last fugitive former AM member, Katsuya Takahashi, is arrested on suspicion of his involvement in the Tokyo subway attack. April 30, 2015, the Tokyo District Court sentences Takahashi to life in prison. January 18, 2018, the Supreme Court rejects Takahashi's appeal, ending all trials linked to Am Shinrikyo cult. July 6, 2018, seven of the 13 former members of Am Shinrikyo on death row, including the founder, Asahara, are executed. July 26, all six remaining Am death row inmates are executed. And just this year, January 1, 2019, a Japanese man drove a minivan directly into a crowd of pedestrians that were out for New Year's celebration just after midnight, uh, injuring eight people, and in his words, they were a retaliation for the death penalty. The 21-year-old man said, I hit them with an intention to kill. I did that to retaliate against the death penalty. He may have specifically meant 
the executions of the Aum Shinrikyo cult members, but that has not yet been confirmed. Aum Shinrikyo's core belief was that members could attain salvation after Armageddon only through Asahara. They believed that there was an upcoming war between good and evil, and that killing those who stood in the way of the supreme truth was justified. And of course, that supreme truth was solely possessed by Shoko Asahara. Now, Aum Shinrikyo had over 10,000 members, and they had accumulated over $2 billion. And when I mentioned earlier in the timeline of the, of the cult, Shoko Asahara and 24 others failed to be elected into public office. This marked the point where they became more radical and lethal. Um, part of this was, so how it works in Japan, there was a protection of religious organizations under the law, and also they had limited intelligence gathering, so it allowed Aum Shinrikyo to try some of the things that they did. Um, they were able to gather large sums of chemical and biological agents in secret, and at one point they even attempted to acquire a Russian nuclear warhead. Uh, Aum Shinrikyo tested chemicals uh, and biological agents in small-scale attacks. Uh, these were mainly against individuals, uh, targeted individuals who were perceived as threats uh, to the organization. Uh, they failed to obtain and cultivate a sample of Ebola. Uh, they failed at cultivating and releasing botulism. And they even failed at creating and spreading anthrax. Uh, in 1994, Aum filled a reporter's apartment with phosgene gas, nearly killing her, and up to 20 of Aum Shinrikyo's own dissidents were killed with VX in 1994. Uh, VX was used in many uh, Aum Shinrikyo assassination attempts, and the most common delivery method being a syringe. Uh, and the most successful, of course, was their sarin attack on the subway. And going back to the VX, that was the one that Asahara uh, admitted to killing uh, someone with VX. I will now play the song, and it is performed by Shoko Asahara, and the song is called Lord Death's Counting Song. So if you're like me and you don't speak Japanese, I actually have a translation. So I'll give you the lyrics first if you would like to follow along. Um, all right, so here's Lord Death's Counting Song. One, two, three, four, five... I count your guilts. I count your guilts. One, two, three, four, five. I judge your guilts one by one. I know everything, even you tell a lie. I did not do it. I am innocence. Liar, do not deceive me. Liar, do not deceive me. You are a liar. You are guilty. The scorching hell. The glacier hell. The hunger hell. The bastard. Hey, devils, take them out. Hey, devils, take them out. So those are the lyrics. Now let's hear the song. Hitatsu, 
子、二他子、你子、幺子、一子子。一头子、二他子、你子、幺子、一子子。一头子、二他子、你子、幺子、一子子。The next song, performed by another bag of shit, his name is David Koresh. He was born Vernon Wayne Howell. He said he changed his name for publicity and business purposes. He was the leader of the Branch Davidians, of course, who had the famous standoff with the ATF and FBI in Waco that ended in flames April 19, 1993. Koresh was born in 1959, grew up in Houston, Texas, and was raised by a single mother. He said that he was a lonely child who struggled in school, but had a great interest in the Bible. He even memorized large portions of it, despite being dyslexic. Koresh joined the Branch Davidians at age 22, and the Branch Davidians were an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventists, and they, create, they were created in 1929. It was there he became involved sexually with the group's prophet. Her name was Lois Roden, and she was in her late 60s. Despite her age, they believed that they would conceive the Chosen One. Now, she had an adult son named George Roden, and he wasn't happy with his potential stepdad, and he wanted to be the next leader, so he forced David Koresh and a few dozen of his followers to leave Mount Carmel at gunpoint. Koresh packed up and set up shop in East Texas, where he attracted more followers, sometimes known as Koreshians. Uh, he went to Israel. It was there in Israel he realized he was the modern-day Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was a Persian ruler who had liberated the Jews from the uh, Babylonians. Uh, they were kept in captivity there. And Koresh translates, uh, sorry, Koresh is a transliteration of the Hebrew name for Cyrus. So George Roden was now threatened again by Koresh, whose popularity was growing. So he came up with a plan. He challenged David Koresh to a contest to see which of the two men could raise the dead. In preparation for the contest, George dug up a body and Koresh went to the authorities to file charges for the desecration of a corpse. So to do so, the authorities said that he would need proof Maybe the police could have gone and checked that out, but they didn't. So Koresh took seven armed followers to Mount Carmel to get a picture of the corpse for evidence. When he arrived, Koresh and his men got into a gunfight with Rodin, who was shot, not fatally, and police ended up arriving. At the trial, Koresh explained that he simply went to Mount Carmel for evidence of desecration of a corpse, and Koresh's followers were acquitted, and Koresh's case was declared a mistrial. In 1989, George Rodin murdered a gentleman named Wayman Dale Adair with an axe. Uh, he hit him in the head with an axe because Adair stated that he was the true messiah. Adair, not Rodin. So Rodin was accurately judged insane and sent to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. Since Rodin owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property. Uh, Koresh's only legal marriage was to Rachel Jones, who was 14 years old at the time of their wedding. I don't know how the fuck that is legal, but it's disgusting. And then Koresh hit them with the cut and paste cult shit and told his followers to embrace celibacy. He ceremonial canceled his followers' marriages and, of course, took the women for himself. Uh, women including children, because that included Rachel's sister, his 14-year-old wife, her 12-year-old sister, Michelle, 
was also, uh, he took her for himself. The Branch Davidians were told that uh, if Koresh had sex with a woman, she was in the house of David. And Koresh allegedly had 12 children by several wives, but there are reports that that might be upwards of 15 or more. David Koresh identified himself as the Lamb that is mentioned in the book of Revelation, which is usually identified as Jesus. Koresh believed he was the one to break the seven seals and open the scr- in opening the scroll, which would kickstart the apocalypse. Koresh told his flock that God needed them to build an army of God, so it was then they began to stockpile large numbers of weapons, which of course caught the attention of U.S. authorities. The ATF had evidence suggesting that Koresh was collecting a cache of illegal weapons inside the Mount Carmel compound, and on February 28, 1993, 76 agents from the ATF attempted to execute their search warrant, and a firefight broke out with the Branch Davidians that lasted two hours. Four ATF agents were killed, and 16 were wounded. Five of the Branch Davidians were killed, including two by their own people. This incident led to a siege that lasted 51 days. It is unknown who fired that first shot that day, but Crash did call 911. And I found a transcript of the call. The audio isn't great, so I'm not going to include it there, but I'll read a little bit of an excerpt. I will be playing Dispatcher and David Koresh. Dispatcher, 911, Koresh, hello, yes. This is David Koresh. We are being tough to call you guys. Dispatcher, this is who, sir? Koresh. David Koresh, Mount Carmel Center. We're being shot at. And he sounds very calm when he says this. The dispatcher asks, where are you? Where am I? I'm at Mount Carmel Center. Dispatcher, okay. Hang on just a second. Koresh says, all right. Someone comes on the phone and it's Lynch. Lynch says, this is Lynch. Hey, Lynch. That's kind of a funny name there. Listen, now this... Lynch interrupts. Now, who am I speaking with? This is David Koresh. Okay, David. Koresh says, the notorious. What did you guys do that for? Well, David, what I'm doing is I'm trying to establish some communication links with you. Koresh interrupted him and said, no, let me tell you something. Lynch said, yes, sir. Koresh, you see, you brought a bunch of guys out here and you killed some of my children. We told you we wanted to talk. How come you guys try to be ATF agents? How come you try to be so big all the time? Lynch said, Okay, David. Koresh. Now there's a bunch of us dead. There's a bunch of you guys dead. Now that's your fault. Lynch said, Okay, let's try to resolve this now. Tell me this. You have casualties. How many casualties? Do you want to try to work something out? ATF is pulling back. We're trying to... Koresh interrupts. Why didn't you do that first? Lynch says, All I'm doing is handling communications. I can't give you that answer, David. They both agree. Koresh says, The thing of it is this. I know this sounds crazy to you, but... Lynch said, No, no. Koresh says, you're going to find out sooner or later. Koresh says, there are, there are, there are seven seals. Now there's some things in the Bible that have been held as mysteries. Lynch says, yes, sir. Koresh, about Christ. Koresh, now there are prophecies. Lynch says, can I interrupt you for a minute? Koresh said, sure. All right, we can talk about theology, but right now, Koresh interrupts. No, this is life. This is life and death. Lynch said, that is what I'm talking Koresh said, is life and death. Lynch said, yes, sir, I agree with that. Koresh said, we will serve God first. Now we will serve the God of the church. Now, we're willing, and we've been willing, all this time to sit down with anybody. You've sent law enforcement out here before, and I've laid it straight across the table. I said, if you want to know about me, sit down with me, and I'll open up a book and show you seven seals. So, this is during a firefight, and he's trying to prophesize with the authorities He's called 911 to talk about the seven seals. On April 19, 1993, the newly appointed U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno approved recommendations by the FBI hostage rescue team to mount an assault after being told that the conditions were deteriorating 
and the children were being abused inside the compound. Because the Branch Davidians were heavily armed, the FBI used Armored Combat Engineering Vehicles, or CEVs, and the CEVs were used um, basically to puncture holes into the walls of the buildings of the compound so they could pump in tear gas to try to flush out the Branch Davidians without harming them. The plan called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure, and no armed assault was to be made, and loudspeakers were to be used to tell Branch Davidians that there would be no armed assault and to ask them not to fire on the vehicles. FBI agents had, per had been permitted to return any incoming fire, but no shots were fired by federal agents on that day. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI's response was to increase the amount of gas being used. After more than six hours, no Branch Davidians had left the building, sheltering instead in a concrete block room within the building or by using gas masks. The FBI hostage rescue team stated that the CEVs were used to punch large holes in the building to provide exits for those inside as well. And at around noon, three fires broke out almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly. The government maintains that the fires were deliberately started by the Branch Davidians themselves. Some Branch Davidian survivors maintain that the fires were started accidentally or deliberately started by the assault, blaming the government for the fires. The compound didn't cool down until a week later. Inside, investigators found 75 bodies. Five of those, I'm sorry, 50 of those died from smoke inhalation from fires started within the compound. And regarding the fires, the authorities had tried to make trades by sending in supplies for them to send children out. Um, one of the deals they made, they wanted to offer them cartons of milk uh, in exchange for uh, releasing people inside. When they didn't agree, the authorities still sent in the milk anyway. But with their milk delivery, they had hidden audio bugs uh, so they could hear what was going on in the compound. And they just had to hope that they were brought into places they needed to hear. Uh, but the milk cartons, uh, the bugs on them, did pick up audio of the Branch Davidians discussing starting the fires. Only nine, of the, only nine of the Davidians had escaped, and all of the remaining 25 children had perished. Cor uh, David Koresh and his deputy, Steve Schneider, were found with fatal wounds to their heads, suggesting either suicide or murder-suicide. In a moment, we're going to hear Book of Daniel by David Koresh, and it's a, it's a bad song. I guess my thought is maybe it's too bad that David Koresh didn't have the guts to dig up a corpse and have that contest with George Roden. Maybe people wouldn't have followed him when they saw he didn't have the juice to raise someone from the dead. Just picture the other Branch Davidians watching as George and David stood over freshly dug up bodies, just screaming at them to resurrect. And of course, neither of the bodies would come back to life. And maybe a few of those Branch Davidians would pause for a moment and think, maybe, maybe I don't want to associate with these people and Maybe they're not all they're cracked up to be. Maybe some lives would have been saved, I'm not sure. But it's something to think about. But there are probably many things you could go and question. If something had been different, the outcome perhaps would have been different as well. Here's David Crash singing Book of Daniel.
got a secret that I'd like you to understand. See the book there in the angel's hand, book of Daniel. It's got a message, message for you. Now we come to the last segment of today's show. So this is the end of part one. It's going to be on Heaven's Gate, and the next show will be side two of that album. Again, that al- album is called Cult Sounds. You can find it online for about 20 bucks. If you like weird vinyl, 
I recommend it. So let's get to Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate was the first well-known cult of the internet era. They used the new technology to share their beliefs. They also generated income through the internet. The group, though, was formed in the 1970s by a Texas music teacher. His name was Marshall Applewhite. He, along with a nurse named Bonnie Nettles, created Heaven's Gate. Now, how did they meet? Well, Marshall Applewhite was a psychiatric patient where Bonnie Nettles worked. So they met, began working this all out, and created Heaven's Gate. They also renamed themselves Bo and Peep. They then traveled the U.S., and in 1974, they assembled a group called The Crew. Bonnie Nettles ended up dying of cancer in 1985, and Applewhite kept things going, and when the internet was introduced to consumers in the 90s, they began using the technology to share their beliefs with the wider audience, and also the reclusive group used it to make a living, because most of their money came from designing websites. Applewhite was the son of a Presbyterian minister, so he took that Christian upbringing and added aliens to it. That is essentially what Heaven's Gate was, a blend of Christianity with aliens. Uh, of course, Applewhite told his followers that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, that God was an alien, and that they were living in the end times. Uh, they did read the Bible, especially Revelation chapter 11, and that section deals with the two witnesses that uh, preach to the world. And at the end of the prophecy, they would have to battle demons, which Applewhite and Nettles called the Luciferians. Heaven's Gate believed that Earth was about to be recycled. When they say recycled, they mean like just decimated, wiped clean, everything's gone. And if you wanted to live on, you needed to reach something called the evolutionary level above human. And that consisted of a genderless, bodiless, spiritual existence aboard a spaceship. They also believed that some of those evolved creatures had already been to Earth. Um, like Jesus. They said Jesus was one of these entities. And Applewhite, of course. Applewhite being one of the only ones able to converse directly with the next level, Heaven's Gate members had to take it on faith when they were told that the Hale-Bob Comet was approaching, that just behind it there was a UFO, and that it would be ready to take them onto the spaceship, and the only way to get aboard was to leave your, your vessel or your vehicle behind, meaning your body. They all put on their matching uniforms that had the patches that said Heaven's Gate Away Team. They put on their Nikes, and we'll talk about the Nikes in a moment. And they just had applesauce and pudding snacks laced with barbiturates and uh, some booze as well. Then they just simply lied down in beds throughout the mansion and draped themselves with a... Most of them had a purple uh, silk uh, square that they just uh, put over their torso and face. So 39 members, including Applewhite, put on their uniforms and, and uh, went to sleep. They didn't view it as killing themselves. They thought they were freeing their souls so they could get onto that spacecraft. Now, the belief system of Heaven's Gate, they thought that evil aliens had taken control of human civilization and had purposely led them away from the kingdom of Heaven with distractions. Distractions like sex, money, attachment to physical things, and they led rather strict, uh, boring lives. The group wasn't allowed to have sex, and some group members uh, voluntarily castrated themselves to control their sexual urges. They had a, a strange diet, and they were big on the master cleanse. The master cleanse is where you drink the lemon water with cayenne pepper and maple syrup. They once did that three straight months to purify their bodies. They had a ledger where they kept track of all money spent 
or earned. And one of the entries, one of the last entries actually in the ledger was that one of the members found six cents on the ground and they logged it. They had a list of approved and not approved films. There was no real explanation why. They were allowed to watch Whoopi Goldberg in the film Eddie, but they couldn't watch GoldenEye. All of their food had to be cooked exactly the same way every time, and they had to report their comings and goings as well. They kept everything very, very clean, and the day they committed suicide, they even took out the garbage. When they did die, they each had a $5 bill and 75 cents and quarters with them. And I mentioned earlier about the sneaker. When they were all found dead wearing Nike's Decade shoe, which was a black sneaker with a white swoosh and white soles, Nike decided to discontinue the line out of respect. But people are so obsessed with finding a pair, they can be found on eBay listed at over $6,000. After the suicides, one of the discoverers of Hale-Bopp Comet gave a press conference. His name is Alan Hale. He said... Tonight, forget about the world for a minute. Go outside, look up in the northwest, and take a look at this comet. It's a beautiful object. It's lovely. It's one of the most magnificent celestial objects you will ever see. But for all of its beauty, its magnificence, its splendor, all it is is a dirty snowball that's orbiting the sun. Nothing more. So that'll do it for part one. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my producer, Hats. Check out heavensgate.com. That website's still running. There are two people that didn't hitch a ride on the comet. Uh, I'll be back within the next two weeks, and we'll do side two of the album. And then after side two is done, the show after that will be a show on hobos. I will leave you with the initiation tape from Heaven's Gate. Again, you can find it on YouTube if you want to watch that, and if that's how you want to spend your life. Certainly, I can't judge. Uh, So thank you for listening. Tell your friends and family. If they don't listen, you're still allowed to talk to them. I don't run that kind of outfit. You eat what you want. And I'm not looking for multiple wives. I have one. I'm very happy with that. We'll keep it that way. Uh, But if you do listen to the show, then maybe, maybe there is a special, special afterlife for listeners of the show. I'm not saying that there is, but I'm also not saying that that's not true. But it's up to you. It's your soul. And whatever you want to do with it, that's your business. But maybe... Maybe there's a very special afterlife for listeners of this show. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. Until next time, be curious. The church today certainly will see us as against the church. The church is not of God. The church was of God. The only church that there is today that is a live church is that which is connected with the present existence of the next level, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, a representative from that kingdom. And this is so exciting to us, even though we know that it is close to our end, and that is why it is exciting to us, because we don't expect to or want to build a church on this planet. We don't want any gothic cathedral we don't want any membership role we don't want to help you reproduce so that we have more children to put on the sunday school role in the church we are a group of believers in the kingdom level above human who want to leave and enter that kingdom and become of significant service It does not mean that when in the human kingdom that a strong humanitarian drive is not a healthy thing because really a strong humanitarian drive is to improve. But 
if you could only see that a human condition is a temporary condition, a stepping stone, an opportunity to get out of this kingdom, then you could accept that. This is as scientific, this is as true as true could be, but you have to know me. You have to trust me. You have to believe me. Some can know me now. Some can even know me for the first time when they see this tape and say, I don't know what there is, but there's something in my head that makes me know that fellow and makes me know that what he's saying is true. And I may be wrong, but I'm going to try to find more out and see if that's what I need to be a part of because I know that this place has become something that is not where I belong. It's funny that the... not funny, it's sad that where a segment of my father's kingdom where even in particular my, my personal heavenly father related to a community that is today considered the Jewish community and worked with them, preparing them for my presence here. And yet the Jewish community would certainly see me as anything but a representative of God. Even the Muslims who are considered the enemy of the Judeo-Christians, the Muslims have a more real connection with God. Still better behavior. Still more restraint. You know, one of my students reminded me just today that they came in contact with a Muslim who said, look, you know, you people of the West have a wrong idea of what we are. That we don't praise Muhammad. We don't worship Muhammad. We consider Muhammad a prophet of many prophets. Many of the books of our literature are of Jesus. And I say great is God more than 50 times a day because God means so much to me. God means so much to them that they are usually more quick to be more modest in the clothing that they wear, more quick to be on guard against sensuality, things of this world, where God means more to them and they are willing to die for God more quickly and justify that frame of mind than a willingness to die for nation or die for world. So I'm not saying that Muslims are the ones that are going to inherit any more than anyone else. They're, in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, there's no such thing as race or color or religious background. It doesn't matter. None of it matters if you came up with where the extent of your religious background was Star Trek. That in itself could be the best background you could have if you could accept this as truth if you could accept this as reality. 
This is a test time. And here's a little old bitty classroom. Some old fellow with prune face sitting here calling himself Doe, saying, I'm a representative of the kingdom of God. How can I believe that? If you have some of my father's mind in you, you will have some of that recognition. Even though once you recognize me, the forces of this world will dive in with all their might to have you lose that recognition, to have you not trust me, to have you come to your senses and come back into the service of this world. I hope this tape session with you will be the beginning of our relationship. If this tape session is used to validate your seeing us as the spurious Messiah, the anti-God, the antichrist, so be it. That's part of what we expect. That's part of the necessity of what comes at this time. It's the common thing for us to see each other as opposites of what we think we are. I'm so happy because that my time is short here. If you come with us, your time is short here. When Jesus left 2,000 years ago, or the one who was in Jesus, or when I left 2,000 years ago, only a very short time after that, truth was significantly corrupted so that no matter who tried to use that name of Jesus or of Christ or that religion, the information, seeing it as true, seeing it as real, referring to what had been said by what it takes to come into my kingdom, that fell apart, that deteriorated, that became unimportant. It's a miracle that it's still in the Gospels. It's still there. You'd be amazed. It's still there. When I'm gone this time, when we're gone, when we leave, when we go and enter into my father's spacecraft in order to go into service in his kingdom, very short time, if you have not by then been recycled, those who are still here, if you are permitted because of my father's kingdom desire to have you stay a while longer, which I don't think is the case, if it were the case, the truth would deteriorate as fast as we depart. It would leave this atmosphere. I hope for your sake that you at least ponder this, that you go into the privacy of your closet. Don't ask your neighbors, your friends, what they think of this. You go see if you can connect with the purest, highest source that you might consider God.